Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn and I'm here with Matt Leach. How are you? Good. How are you, sir? I'm really good. Nice and cool in here. Nice and cool. We are sitting in Muse, which is a little, I guess, a co-working space. It's very, very cool, actually. Really nice kind of like kind of interior design, getting into my interior design. Oh, yeah? It's in Surrey Hills. It's like the outside is on the inside. I love it. The outside is in. I can see that. Yeah. Before we go any further, we should mention stream time now. Yes, um, they've been supportive of us for oh, a few years now, which yeah. has been really great. Actually, they're doing this really cool thing on Crowdcast. Mm. Do you know what Crowdcast is? Uh, I haven't done one before, but I know what it is in context of this stream. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's kind of like this, um, I guess, like an on, online seminar kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and Streamtime has been doing using it really well in the, in the way that they've, um, they kind of do like workshops around different things that are important for studios. Yeah. Sometimes it touches on Streamtime. Sometimes it's just a... A really good thing they've got one actually coming up and you can always go back if you've missed it you can always go back and watch it but mm-hmm. this one's all about kind of how to consolidate your workflow because um, obviously we're all using multiple different things these days yeah and so it's a really nice way of kind of like looking at what you're doing so sort of auditing all of the different things you're using and kind of thinking a little bit more strategically about how you use them yeah cool we should put that in the show notes so we're sitting here, Rob Self Pearson from London, UK. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Hello, guys. Thank you for having me. Hello, pleasure. I'll give, I'll give a little bit of a background. So, Rob is a writer and brand consultant, founder and head of the table, an agency devoted to tone of voice and copywriting. He's worked with the likes of Gumtree, British Gas, IKEA, VA, and Bizarrely, where I first came across your work, the Trebar Gardens in Cornwall. Do you know Trebar Gardens? I do. Do you? That is very strange. I, so, my wife is Cornish. So every time we go back to Cornwall, we have to go to, it's, it's like, we have to go there. It's a beautiful part of it the world. It is really beautiful. My, my heart is very much in Cornwall. So you've probably seen my heart a few times while you've been down there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I lived in Falmouth in Cornwall for two years on and off and uh, absolutely fell in love with the place. You studied there as well, didn't you? In I Falmouth? studied for a year, yeah, yeah. I did a professional writing MA at Falmouth University. So it was my sort of my step between undergrad and then working as a writer for a career so yeah but uh i get down there as much as i possibly can it is a gorgeous part of the world what kind of work does a writer do for a garden um this writer as with many of his projects decided that words should celebrate all sorts of things in life and so i i was board member of an organization called 26 in the uk which is the coming together of lots of corporate writers so lots of business writers but also lots of poets and various writers from all different walks of life and we uh we put on projects to celebrate whatever we can possibly celebrate because we just like writing and this project was called 26 flavors of cornwall so there were 26 different sorts of food and drink that are synonymous with Cornwall, the county of Cornwall. And uh, we got 26 writers, paired them with designers and graphic people and got the writers and designers to work with each other and respond in some way to the food. Can you tell us a bit more about 26? Because I know you've said that it changed your life. It did indeed. Um, The people of 26, the members of 26 and the founders of 26 have become very good friends to me over the years. So yeah, it's a it's a membership organisation of copywriters, as I say, from all different walks of life. Uh, some are business writers, some are poets, some are short story writers. In some way, they are connected to the world of business writing, usually. And 
They were founded uh, by a guy called John Simmons alongside Tim Rich. Um, lots of the, the biggest names in the UK writing industry, business writing industry. And I got in touch with them when I moved back up from Cornwall second time round. And I've, I knew that I wanted to make a living from writing in some way. And I didn't really know how that would be a way of living, but I thought it would be a great one if I could. Um, and that's proven to be right since. Um, it is a nice way of living a life. And uh, yeah, I got in touch with 26 because a friend put me onto them and I got to meet John Simmons, which was fantastic. I suppose at the time I didn't realize how important he was a character. Um, so I just introduced myself, slightly cocky 23-year-old Rob saying, hi, John, you should know me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, John and I became very good friends and I became part of 26 and got onto the board of 26 for a couple of years, ran lots of different projects in lots of different places. And as I say, gained a huge network of brilliant people as a result. I really love that story. And I think, you know, that idea when you know too much about someone, when you're a fan, yeah, it's almost, it makes it impossible to talk to people. Yeah, being overly intimidated by people. I was thinking earlier about, I don't know why I was walking around the streets here thinking of heroes and, and uh, who would be my hero. And now I'm lucky enough to work with, on a level with a lot of the people who I used to call heroes and now good friends, mm. heroic good friends. But still, um, yeah, I'm at a level now where I think I know these guys and I respected these guys and now I work with these guys. Would you classify, you mentioned they were heroes, would you classify them in almost like a mentorship capacity? Yeah. Is that how the relationship began? Like Very someone much. you stood up with? Stood up to, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, John in particular, um, I was, so I was 23, 24. I was working in a small agency, a small web development agency north of London. And... I knew it wasn't quite right for me, but I didn't know what else I could do until I chanced upon this life of copywriting, so writing for for commercial purposes. And then everything I'd heard about that really was, it's dry, it's boring, you're not gonna be able to use your creative writing. So I'd studied creative writing at university and oh, it's not gonna be creative. And then this character, John, uh, made everything seem really creative within the corporate world and he said actually storytelling everything that you've learned at university about storytelling about engagement about painting colorful scenes with language it's crucial to businesses that's how we engage people and businesses need to do that more than lots of other organizations mm. people so why wouldn't you be creative within your your writing and so yeah it was almost a it was an arm around the shoulder to say, don't worry, Rob, everything you've learned is still very valuable for what you're going to do in your, your career and future. Is this a bit, I mean, narrative has is, is now become a bit jargonistic, I guess. Everyone who's talking, even clients are talking about how they need to get some narrative into their brand. Yeah. He's kind of getting at that, isn't he? I'm not a brand designer, I'm a storyteller. Yeah. Yeah, story is the buzzword. Um, so as as part of, of what I do in my company is I... I tend not to go in selling the idea of story, but I go in understanding the value of story when it's done well. So lots and lots of brands say, we're going to tell you our story. And then they just list lots of, <laughs> of usually not particularly interesting facts in a way that doesn't make it a story in Here's any way. Is the bullet way. point proud presentation uh, of our story. Yeah, <laughs> quite. And, and story is just, yeah, it's the top of, uh, it, it's, it's just become popular because I think, you can sell it. Anything that can 
right. be packaged as is shorthand for something. It's like we'll do story now. Every band brand our story. We'll do tone of voice. We'll do yeah. tone of voice. Mm. It's something you can package up neatly and 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 sell to somebody. But if you don't know the the mechanics of story, then you don't do story. So people half the time aren't being sold story. They're being sold a boring list of something that doesn't connect in an interesting, intriguing way, which is what story is all about. You mentioned, you know, what, what you do. And I, I guess I'm interested in that because um, you've talked about being a consultant for mm-hmm. brands. So where does, I guess, is there a line between that and, say, strategy? Because it feels like it's yeah. a similar sort of area. There's, so. there's much more of a crossover than I ever realized. I work with a, a, a great creative strategist called Hugh Roberts. And uh, we've been working together for about two and a half years. And right at the beginning, I thought, I, I again, hero sort of character. I admire this guy. I like what he does. I like the way that he thinks. It's, it felt like a different way of thinking to me. So I sat down with him for a, a coffee at some point and I said, Hugh, how, how does strategy work? And he said, Rob, you do strategy. He said to me, story is strategy. Your thinking is strategy. Your writing is strategy. He said, you, you bring clarity to projects for your clients and you're able to help them to see where they could get to and not just to help them to see where they could get to but then you help them to get there as well he said you're you're almost a strategist plus some because mm. you can help them then to articulate that strategy in some way so yeah the the more i suppose the higher level i get the more strategy i feel like i'm doing or the more consultancy uh, for me it's all i've always said in my my career that I just like helping people to clear up their thinking and mm-hmm. articulate their ideas. And whether we call it strategy or design or writing, it doesn't really matter to me as long as I'm helping in some way. How often do you come into an organization or business and it's just a complete mess <laughs> of like multiple, and I'm not asking you to name any names, but like, no. you know, um, you know, three CEOs ago and, you know, we've had multiple business changes. Our business has pivoted twice in the last 10 years, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And you're sort of coming through and almost need like to unpack everything and then put it all back together. I would say that often happens. But then that's that's why I'm needed and that's why my right. agency is needed and that's why designers and strategists are needed. And the best clients are those who realize that who see that there is a problem, there is a confusion, there is something going on that they can't quite work out and they need people to bring that clarity that I talk about. So yeah, I think most, otherwise otherwise those brands just bubble nicely and sail along and don't, don't really need the help of people from the outside. I just want to jump back to mm. university. Hang on. Uh, dumb funded? Yeah. Is that still going? No, no. It was quite a short-lived thing. So this was, yeah, this was a theatre company that I set up with two friends. You know, when you have an evening where you have a few beers and everything seems like a good idea. This is how ADR came about. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) What if we just recorded this conversation? Yeah, (laughs) quite. Yeah. Well, this was. This was we want to be right. We want to be successful. My my friend Christoph and Miles. We want to be successful writers. We want to be famous writers. We want to be, we want to be doing footlights and reviews and all of the famous um, sketch shows. And we should be doing Mitchell and Webb and all this sort of stuff. But well, nobody knows who we are. So how are we going to get there? One pint, two pint, three pints. I tell you what, guys. Why don't we set up our own theatre company? So we just did. We just set up our own theatre company. And Chris was a guy who 
he's a he's a musician he's a writer he's a great thinker he's a philosopher he's everything he was the guy who probably helped me at, so again i was early 20s to believe that so much is possible and he's and he said we should start a theater company and i said okay sounds great not thinking it would happen <laughs> and then within a couple of uh, months it would have been we were on the bbc writers room website promoting this idea to the world asking people to submit uh, comedy sketches to dumb funded and we had a logo and we had a website and then we'd sold out three nights at a local cafe and had more demand for a fourth night and this 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 <laughs> thing just took off completely so yeah dumb funded was short-lived but incredibly successful in in little cornwall um and yeah it, it gave me hope that you could if you had an idea and you worked hard enough you could make that idea happen turn it into something it's quite i was trying to do some research on it and there is actually uh, a legitimate dumb funded now um which is how uh, dare they it's a uk service which uh is a personal finance blog that oh, does, really? does reviews on personal finance apps so <sighs> Well, yeah, if it hadn't been a sketch show, perhaps that's what it would have become. <laughs> so you've been writing for, like, you've written for many sort of publications. I guess I'm interested about where did the love of writing come from? The love of writing, I can trace it back, I think, to an hour in my life, probably. Um, I had, a, I had a, a sort of a replacement teacher in the middle of my secondary school. I think she, was only, she only came in for one class and it was an English class and it was the first time that we were able to do creative writing, so not just literature. It wasn't just reading books, it was actually try and write a piece that was creative. And I think I've always been at the, the beginning of creative writing being explored within school, within university. And this was creative writing being encouraged within secondary school. So this teacher, Miss Amahir, I think her name was, Miss Amahir, and she was there for Amahir, she was there for one, <laughs> one class only. And we all had to, it's funny you ask this because I was thinking about it earlier today, we all had to write something creative. We had to use creative language and I was 14 or 15 and I wasn't that confident with language, I suppose, at the time. I'd scribbled in my own books, but I'd never really explored it or published it or showed it to anybody else and then I, I wrote this piece and Miss Amahir marked it and it was the first and only A star that I remember getting to so the best possible grade and a lovely message from her in response to my piece saying this is beautiful I love what you've done here please continue to write and I, I kind of kept that thought with me from then. And that it really affected me as a, as a young lad thinking there's one thing that I'm actually really good at and I'm going to continue to do this. And from then I've met people who just supported me as I took steps up throughout. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think I can trace it back. Trace it's it back it's to quite them. amazing because it's not the first time we've heard that, like the, especially a relief teacher as well, yeah, being, yeah. being the real impact, which is interesting in itself. But just getting that... Um, getting that encouragement at the right time, mm. um, especially at that age when you're kind of, you're not sure, you're, you're being told that you have to have a profession. Yeah. And, but you like, I don't know what I oh, want Oh, good, yeah. I went to the careers advice, like the school meeting that you had and the, the chap said, what do you want to do when you get out of school? And I didn't know what industry really was. So I think 
computers had just come into the school. I said, I want to be in IT because everyone in the sort of <laughs> late 90s wanted to be in IT. I didn't know what it meant, but mm. I, I but I loved art. I loved art. I loved drawing. I, I was painting. I was writing. So I was clearly a creative person. But at that age, it's like, right, what's a career? IT. I should work with computers. But that didn't, other than tapping on a Mac now, <laughs> I tend not to do that much with a computer. What did the career advisor, did they give you advice? Because I've never heard a good career advisor story. Um, no, I think I think they just took my idea of being in IT and said, yeah. oh, work no, hard. Oh, yeah, well, you'll get there. And then he checked there. out and went home. Didn't <laughs> yeah, he? I think like, so. I'm done for the day. Yeah. That's me, career advisor. Miss Amahir came off. in and said, oh, don't you dare listen to him. Oh, that's not quite what happened. But no, this guy, <laughs> yeah, I don't think he really cared. I think a career no. advisor is a little bit like police. Like they have, they have a, like a, a checklist they have to get through a certain. They got a quota. Yeah, yeah. So it's like the fact that you came in with the answer. He was like, "Awesome, <laughs> yeah." This guy's done his research. <laughs> and I think if they can't find a role for you, they just go well, career advisor, I guess, and the cycle continues. <laughs> and that's where career advisors are born. There I think go. you've got it. Yeah, we solved it. Yeah, I literally had a conversation yesterday with someone else who was talking about their career advisor, and they're just like, "Yeah, they tried to steer me in this opposite direction." I'm like, "I've literally never heard anybody tell me." Went to the career advisor. They said, "You're going to be a, you're going to be a famous designer. Great." Mm. And then off I went. So the table, where, where did the name come from? Um, so I, writers have this reputation of enjoying being locked away in a room by themselves and just having a lamp over their shoulder and and being solitary creatures and I never have been I've never really been within the mold of anything that I've liked doing so as a writer I've collaboration has been one of my favorite parts of writing I get to work on projects in Cornwall with lots of people or the VNA with lots of people and and brief in various uh, designers illustrators everybody I can possibly work with and I always loved doing that. And I worked on a project about four or five years ago with a, a great designer, creative direct, director, illustrator, um, filmmaker. All of these skills were there together. And I, was, I lived with the designer at the time and we were driving back to our flat. And I turned to Alex and said, uh, I said, I love projects like this. I really love when we bring loads of people together. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it's really cool. And I said... In future, I want to bring I want to bring more people to the table, and I want to bring skills to the table, and I want to bring work to the table. And I stopped and I looked at him and I said, "I think I probably need an agency called the Table, don't I?" <laughs> and he went, "Yeah, mate, you could you could have an agency called the Table, and then you could actually bring people to the table." So this kind of <laughs> metaphor just turned into uh, this idea that I wanted to to have. I wanted to have a place where I could bring creative people together and the table is of course the place where people gather around mm. and break bread and share food and share stories and so yeah it was the perfect metaphor for what i wanted to do i think it has legs <laughs> ah, oh, very good well very yeah. good i'm having that i like the um I like it. when you go into the website, it says, welcome to the table, have a seat, mm -hmm. which is quite nice as well. Yeah, and we're starting to play more and more with the metaphor. Yeah. So um, we want to have a little brand book called Table Manners, of course. Yep. We've now started doing our own interviews with industry people, and that's Table Talk. So, yeah, I'm starting to explore where the table could be and whether you could fold up the table and put it elsewhere. And, yeah, but it's a fun, it's a fun metaphor to play with. I want to talk more about design as well because um, because we're a design podcast. Hmm. But also, I mean, you've said quite a few times that you have always been interested in kind of mixing 
the writing and the design yeah. kind of sides things. And I, there was a article you did for Design Week, five things I love about designers. Mm. And in that, you sort of start off and you're, you had a friend who suggested that you should write a BuzzFeed style list um, because it might help you bring more writers and designers together like you've always wanted. Mm. Where does that come from? What that, that need for them to come together and understand each other? I don't know. Maybe it's per- part of my personality is that I just like people cooperating and mm-hmm. learning from each other. And that that's quite fun. That's just like a human need for me. But also, I think I, when I, when I broke into the branding industry, design industry, I had actually met lots of people from advertising first. And it made perfect sense to have a copywriter and an art director sitting opposite each other and coming up with ideas and growing those ideas and challenging each other and and producing better work as a result. So I naturally assumed that the same would happen within branding and design. So I was actually quite shocked to find that it didn't happen as much as I thought it might. So any opportunity that I got, I did it myself. I went, okay, I'm going to be better if I work opposite a skilled creative director, a skilled design design director, or even an illustrator or somebody who just has a skill that I don't have. And I think I was proven right many times that they would they would also feed back on my writing, which I found interesting. And over time, well, you'd lose your interesting. Uh, interesting. Well, <laughs> okay, yeah, to, to be completely honest, to start with, you think, how dare you get your hands off my words, you, you son of a gun. But, uh, but now I love it and I've become far less precious about my writing and I feel like the creative output of the project is a result of the two or three or five or ten people working together in harmony and producing something that's great. So if a designer wants to improve my writing, then absolutely I'm up for it. As long as they're willing for me to say, I think that you're kernings off, then then we can have a little chat about that. And I I work very closely. I have incredibly talented design friends who have always opened up the process to me over the years so I know I've been on design courses I go to design talks I love design I I now go to life drawing classes I draw things I'm for me I don't think I'm a good enough writer unless I understand the the project as a whole and the output Uh, there's no point me just submitting stuff on a word document all the time if it's going to become a press ad at some point so yeah for me it's it's a natural desire to want to work with other people and be inspired by them do you see that same natural desire the other way around so when you're working with designers creative directors Mm. whatever their title is that they're just as excited to to learn about language and, and copy and i think more and more yeah, I think I've been doing this for 10 years and I've seen a shift in right. those 10 years and especially now doing what I'm doing with the training. Mm. There's been great demand from designers for the courses that I run and I think that shows a hunger to know more about this this mystical, magical world of writing which seems to be... Uh, so often I have briefs that say, can you just sprinkle a bit of magic dust on the copy? And it's like, well, there's a bit more to it so than the that. the copywriting a... version of like, can you just make it a little bit more wow? Make it pop. Make it pop. Yeah, make yeah. it pop. Yeah, make yeah, it yeah. pop. It, yeah. There is, yeah. It's the copy, make it pop. And right. I, I'm, I think I get less of that now. And I get, it's back to that strategic consultancy thing. I do a lot of, a lot of my job seems to be explaining the importance of, and, and the wonder and the beauty of what writers can do. Mm. 
So there is less and less of that magic dust and more can you come in and work with us for half a day show us where you think this might go is there another writer you could bring in who are copywriter level you could do the strategic work that i think there's more of an appreciation now than when i started 10 years ago it's a very quickly changing industry of course and it's lovely to see it's heartening to see the changes natural question is why do you suppose that is i suppose that not every project is a success and we all, as, as humans, we want to improve all the time. So if something isn't working, then why wouldn't you try and find another way to do it? And I think that if companies are going to spend a lot of money on rebrands and visual identity work, and then something falls flat and it doesn't really have the effect that they want it to have, then there's something not quite right there. And perhaps it's the copywriting, perhaps the words aren't doing their job well enough. And so designers and the design industry are perhaps just starting to bring writers a little closer into their side and say, look, we can't we can't always we can nail the design, we can nail the visuals. But when designers sit down with words, quite often we're not hitting the mark. So we need some some expertise from elsewhere. I think um Gumtree is a probably really great case study because I know when they did their rebrand, mm. what really stood out to me was the writing and the copywriting that went with it, which was obviously you. How was that like kind of a perfect kind of brand to kind of because because before it was like, I guess I liken Gumtree to going to like a secondhand store mm. where now it feels like it's a competitor to eBay. Yeah. Um, it was like Craigslist, Craigslist yeah. almost, if yeah. you put them on an advertising like this is the category, whereas now I think, as you said, it's a little bit more Etsy, eBay style, yeah. but for secondhand stuff. Yeah, and that that's that's their awareness. So they have wanted to reposition, and also the work that I did with them all those years ago, three years ago, I think it was now. That was as a response to. Uh, the research that they'd done from their consumers who wanted them to step up, wanted mm. them to change in a way. So we developed a tone of voice. Uh, I say we because I did it through the table. It was pretty much all from my brain at the time. But I, there was a lot of research. There was a lot of speaking to the, the marketing manager there, uh, just getting a sense of what Gumtree really stood for, working with the advertising agency who had come up with this idea of opportunity. So it wasn't just... Um, car boot sale like back of the van selling yeah. some crap anymore it was very much we're giving opportunities to people to change the way that they live through getting somebody else's this or that and and there's so much behind the scenes that happens with gumtree that that they needed to have a different way of communicating they needed to engage people in a different way so building a tone of voice that was one of the principles for them is refreshingly optimistic so some of the feedback from consumers was that Gumtree just feels a bit negative about stuff. It's like they don't celebrate the fact that they're helping us all to do these things. They're, mm. they're almost responding to some of the more negative press that they have, and that, that filters through their communications. So for me, it was obvious just to flip it on its head and say whenever we communicate, we should try and be refreshingly optimistic. And that was probably the one that the advertising agency picked up on the design agency picked up on everybody started to run with this idea of being optimistic but refreshing at the same time so not just smileys everywhere but being quite clever with the yeah. design and with the verbal and the visuals working together 
so yeah it was i think that was a good it was that was the beginning of the table really we launched off the back of the gumtree project and they were a great client and we worked with studio koto as the design agency on there so james greenfield was leading the 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 logo design and the visual identity so it was just a great partnership all round again it was one of those projects that i love because it's just lots yeah. of collaboration which brings us to the workshops yes so obviously that's the whole reason you're in australia i am indeed and it's they all sold out now like there's seven of seven them that you're doing yes i think they're all pretty sold out yeah i think we've got I think actually within the last hour we might have sold the last place on the last one. So yeah, seven sellouts. Can you give us a bit of an elevator pitch of what they're about? Yeah, of course, absolutely. So Verb is a uh, it's it's all that I've just talked about really. It's the bringing together of designers with writing to show the the joy and the wonder and the power of the word, the spoken word and the written word. So we get uh, up to 12 designers into a room with lots of creative exercises, some theory behind writing, and we get designers and strategists and some project managers, whoever's volunteered sometimes from the agency, to sit down with these fun assignments, with new theory about writing, and just get playful with language and see where it takes them. And usually from the, the workshops that we've run over the last year, we get some fascinating results and designers take language in ways that writers might never do and i find that very inspiring i, I did look at the um claim on, on on the workshop copy and it sort of said um workshop will give designers confidence in their ability to both write great copy and critique others including in-house or freelance copywriters and i just imagine all the copywriters around the country going oh god <laughs> not a designer looking at my work but that's I mean, why shouldn't we? I, maybe I'm slightly different in that I've, as I say, I've, I've worked with designers over the years and I've, I've got close friends who are brilliant designers who have invited me in to critique their work. Like, do you think the logo's working here? What do you think of the colour mm. scheme? Blah. And I've always appreciated that level of openness and I want it to be a two-way thing. So I will, of course, if I've written something for a designer or a strategist or whoever, I want to get their feedback as well. So I don't think anyone should be scared of the other, the other side having improved skills, enhanced skills. It should, be, it should be to the benefit of everybody. I think the way you put it about the advertising agencies and about how those two sides of the coin mm. challenge each other. I think that that's a perfect way of kind of explaining it because it, it is weird that we don't have it in design so much. Yeah, I always had this dream of a writer sitting opposite designer within the branding industry and having just banks of desks lined up where you have these relationships constant. And I can only imagine that the work will improve as a result of two brains as opposed to one mm. and two brains that have different skill sets working together so that's what verb is all about it's trying to encourage designers to have more appreciation and love of the craft of writing so we we show inspiring clips of, of language being used at the beginning of the workshop just to show what you can do so some of that writing is big physical chunky words stuck between buildings like bus stops made yeah. out of the word bus and and then there's poetry in there i'm showing the power of metaphor through poetry just to try and inspire designers at the very beginning to to say writing isn't necessarily crafted copy it can just be a word here or there that can make a difference to somebody's day and therefore it's a very very powerful tool 
So 9.30 to 5? They're intense. I think that's the way we sell them. Yeah, well, we, <laughs> it took, so Tim and I, Tim Rich, my, my co-founder at Verb, we spent two years coming up with a one-day workshop. Um, I'm quite impulsive. Tim is very measured. Tim's being measured one over my impulsive nature. And I'm glad it did because it meant that we spent a lot of time gradually building a very intense and and just packed workshop that goes naturally from not knowing much about writing within business and copywriting all the way through to being to talking about rhetoric and the power of pathos and ethos really and logos to to convince people to do something through the power of language so it has to be a long day because there's so much to pack into that day but yeah people are suitably tired by the end of it Ethos and pathos and logos comes from... It's one of Aristotle's. Aristotle. Yeah, yeah. it's rhetoric, yeah, it's Greek yeah. rhetoric, yeah. Which is all about the art of persuasion, isn't it? Art of persuasion, exactly yeah. that, yes. Um, Sam Leith books, if you'd ever want to read a book on rhetoric, Sam Leith is an incredible writer around rhetoric, and yeah, there is so much to be learnt from those guys. And so as part of the workshop, we show a Barack Obama speech and we we strip it down and we look at the rhetoric devices that are within there and then encourage the designers to start using some of those rhetorical devices to persuade during a presentation so uh, we've built in presentation skills into this workshop as well so yeah there, there's a lot there's there are lots of nuances within the day and why only 12 people why only 12 because uh 12 i find 12 quite a few for a workshop it's i i think that if you're going to pay for a workshop that is being sold to you as intense, you expect to have quite a bit of one-to-one -one time with the workshop leader. Yep. And if it's more than 12, then it's quite tricky to split your time. Tim and I often run these workshops together. Tim sadly couldn't make it over to Australia for, for this run that we're doing. But um, yeah, if it's two of us, then we might be able to stretch it a little bit above 12. But I think, I think they all it's deserve yeah, an, a, enough of my time during the workshop. You were talking about Barack Obama's speech, yeah. So, because um, this whole time, often I was thinking. I mean, you, we spoke about tone of voice, but mm -hmm. I was off, I was thinking this was create like essentially creative writing, yeah. Workshop. So, is it what kind of areas do you cover? Because I'm going to merge this with another question that I Go have on. in here about when I think of tone of voice, I often think of external communications. Mm -hmm. But do you talk about kind of internal? language and the language we use to communicate our ideas to each other as well yeah i i have this belief that tone is as important internally as it is externally i mean you you want to be a single brand you want to be a single unified brand or whatever we call it in the jargon that we have in our industry but you want to mm. you want to speak as what you don't want to in you don't want to have an advertising campaign where you're celebrating how friendly and warm you are and then inside your offices you're being horrible to the juniors for messing up about something. Right. And so actually to have a tone of voice that says we are friendly and warm, which would be the most basic tone of voice that I would suggest anybody ever creates, but that we have an empathy towards people, that we celebrate the the wins of people, that we're we're our language somehow just suggest success like all these little subtleties that you can build into a voice and do it internally as well for gumtree that was really important and i had people i trained over probably 200 people inside gumtree in their tone of voice and you had some people pushing back saying it doesn't matter it doesn't matter inside we're we're, we're selling stuff on the outside mm -hmm. here 
And I have this strong belief that so a lot of the Gumtree tone of voice was built on positive psychology and the idea that smiles are contagious and happiness is contagious. And actually, if you're if you're treating your team behind the scenes well and they feel good about what they do, the chances are they're going to treat your customers and your consumers better right. as well. So we're actually now, we're still working with Gumtree three years down the line and we're working on their new culture program, which is really all this idea of, for me, it feels like bringing the tone of voice back inside again and making sure that we're being refreshingly optimistic in the way that we speak to our staff as well. And and why not? We're all humans at the end of the day. And, and if we can bring a smile to each other, then surely that's that's the way to live that kind of leads me to another question that was around this kind of area which is um often think about design you know think often think about oh wow it's amazing the case study is perfect you see it sit on brand new no one likes it on brand new but like everybody else really loves it and then there's this handover process and then six months down the track you see some new advertising campaign yeah. from like the internal team and it's logos ah, upside down I and see, like yeah. it's all kind of wrong yeah, so yeah, my words are upside down right yeah, yeah backwards which we, which yeah. in design we always have to deal with but at least we can kind of hand over templates or there's less right. that they could do wrong but i imagine with words that like, everyone thinks they're a writer yeah so yeah well this is the value of training i would say so i would always encourage a client to develop a tone of voice but once you've developed the tone of voice, actually sell it in to your team and your company. So get some guidelines and do some training. Otherwise, it seems like a bit of a waste to have this book that potentially might not be opened by anybody. So do the do the training, get people engaged in it and then come back to it. Do regular reviews of it. Get your other agencies interested in it. Train them. So with Gumtree, the first workshop that we ran, I had the advertising team in there. I had the digital team in there. I had the PR team in there, all having fun with the tone of voice. And it was probably one of the best bits of feedback that any of the tones of voice that I've developed got in that they all sat there. And at the end, it was just before Christmas. I remember they wanted to squeeze in a workshop just before Christmas. And I thought, oh, everyone's going to want to go to Christmas parties. This isn't the time to do tone of voice training. <laughs> but at the end of the workshop, they all said, thank you. You've given us the license to engage people be mm. positive about things gumtree has needed this for a long time and we love the fact that we're able to do it now so it just gave confidence to them and as soon as i think as soon as the ad team got their hands on it and then the digital team it just started to spread and it felt so much like gumtree that everybody wanted to engage with it and you i can still see that tone of voice coming through now these these years later and in fact we're doing a review of it Right now, when I get back in March, we'll be doing a review. And the one thing I've been told is that we're not allowed to change the three principles, which is, I suppose, testament to the fact that they were very close to what Gumtree needed in the first place. So what we'll do is we'll just look at some of the examples of work that have come out recently to make sure that they're still doing what they need to do mm. under those principles. Is that always the case? I mean, you're saying you've been working with Gumtree for three plus years yeah. and reviewing it. Is that common with, with clients? We do continue to have relationships with our clients, but sometimes it's a financial challenge to do a big review of the tone of voice again. Sometimes we're just brought in for one day to look at a couple of documents that have gone out. If not, then perhaps we're kept on as the copywriters. So mm -hmm. as guardians of the tone of voice, we do a lot of the writing ourselves anyway. Um, but yeah, I, it's not as common as I would like it to be. Mm -hmm. Talk a bit more about your writing as well, because yeah. you've obviously published a book, uh -huh. um, which was Twinned With, which was a bit of an exploration of 
Twin Towns. Flynn, do you know what Twin Towns are? Yeah, does that are? translate? No. <laughs> so definitely in the UK, we have a little bit over here as well, but you'll, you'll go into a town and it'll say um, Twin City of... Oh. And there'll be some random... I've seen that on place. Parks and Recreation, right. um, where Pawnee is a twin city with Venezuela. Yeah. And it's h- hilarity ensues. Yeah. And it's and they're often quite random and you have never heard of the place or or it's such a big place that you're like, how did this place get paired with that? Right. I'm, I'm up to speed. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need me now. <laughs> Read the book. Where, where did it come from? Well, the, I suppose here's the other part of my life is that... I have strange ideas for books and then I go off and research them and start writing them. So this was, I'd, I'd been doing some traveling and I'd been going in and out of towns in the UK and seen all the signs that said twinned with, twinned with, twinned with. And I realized that I'd never been to my twin town. So I'm from a small, small villagey town north of London called Waltham Abbey. And I'd always seen on the town sign that said twinned with Herstal, North Rhine, Westphalia, Germany. I was like, okay, that's that's a that's a long name. I've got no idea what that is or what that that really means. And I'd never been to Germany before, so I met with a couple of friends. Again, this is going to sound like I'm some sort of drunkard, but we went to the pub and I spoke to a couple of old school friends who reminded me that I actually had the opportunity to go to Hurstel at school, but I turned it down to play snooker instead as the prize for being one of the I don't know best behaved kids in the year or something. I could go to my twin town, which at the time seemed amazingly unappealing. Or I could go and play a sport, which I really enjoyed. So I went to do that instead. And so my friends teased me about that and said, you've never had an interest in town twinning. Why would you, why would you want to go to your twin town? And I said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm culturally interesting and interested. Of course I want to go to my, my twin town. So I went to the local town twinning association and met a lovely old lady called Norma Green, at her watercolor class it was a snowy day she came in late she was quite fearsome and uh and she said robert i'm not going to tell you too much about this you need to go to germany and meet uh come some of the the town twinning people and i said okay uh, how do i do that she said, i'll put you in touch with them and within a very short time a couple of weeks i think it was i was in Herstal, North Rhine, Westphalia, with Elke and Bernard Warnschuler staying in their freezing cold loft <laughs> and being uh, like cycling around the towns of Herstal and Bivergen and finding out about the, the Nazi history of the town and then the modern art that had started to come in and the waterways and the canals. And I was fascinated, this tiny little town that I'd turned down the opportunity to visit all those years before that had felt like it could be anywhere actually had a really strong relationship to my town and it was really quite a beautiful thing so i thought to myself there must be other people who have been as lazy as me and not visited <laughs> their their town before so i started a website and i said if you've if you know what your twin town is but you've never been and you'd like somebody else to go i'll go and i got over 50 people saying i'd like you to go to my twin town a couple of them were miles and miles away so i couldn't do it but i chose 45 of them and then did a three-month road trip around the European continent and found out all that I could about town twinning and Europe. So this was pre-B word, Brexit. This was um, before Brexit had ever really been mentioned, 2012. And I just freely floated around the European continent feeling very European. And it was lovely. It was a, it was a beautiful three months and I'm so glad that I did it. It's a, it's a really beautifully written book as well because it's a real... 
it feels a bit of a journey for you as well. Mm -hmm. It's like a, it's a journey into who you are and, and, and your traveling companions and, and all that kind of stuff. Is there any more books coming? There is a book in production. Yes. Um, so before that, I said that I, I traveled around lots of towns in the UK. I was in 2009, I started another little adventure called Moonwalking. So every time there was a full moon in 2009. This, this explains something on your Twitter profile. Really? Yeah. You've just got moonwalking randomly. And I was like, what? what yeah. That? Moon, yeah. So moonwalking is pretty random. That's why it appears randomly. Um, yeah. 12 months of the year, there were 13 full moons in 2009. And because I'd never read a travel book that was set at night before, I thought I would be the first one <laughs> to write it. Uh, but I needed a theme. So I spoke with friends and had lots of conversations, as you know, probably had a couple of beers. And uh, the <laughs> full moon seemed to be the perfect uh, theme for a book. So I, I met paranormal investigators in this year, long distance walkers. I stayed in people's lofts and sheds and and went up to the top of Glastonbury Tour and went all over the country dressed up in a bra that had two full moons on there and did a charity moonwalk uh, with lots of people up in Scotland. I dedicated myself to a, a lunar year, which I suppose Chinese New Year has just happened, so that's uh, quite good timing. And and yeah, I, I learned a lot about myself that came after a breakup from a relationship and this idea of femininity and the full moon was quite interesting to me and I learned about the word month coming from moon and menstrual cycle coming from moon and all of these, the way that we live our lives today and a lot of the language that we use actually comes from the lunar lives that we used to live before the idea of a solar life took over. It was, it was immersive and fascinating and I'm still writing the book as you can tell from that description. It hasn't been the <laughs> easiest book to write so yeah. 10 years on I'm, I'm halfway through the first draft of it and actually finally quite pleased with what I've written. I don't think I've ever felt that I could do justice to the book and now finally I think I'm a good enough writer to be able to write it. It was always a little bit intimidating. I often imagine, and there's a question here, I often imagine that um, for writers you're constantly writing books because you think of something and you've got like this almost, oh wow, one day I'm going to sit down at, you know, like designers do. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm going to start that, that website. Or I'm yeah. going to do this community thing, or I'm going to I'm going to start that, creating that passive, digital art. passive income thing, yeah, or something <laughs> like that. Like how how many? I'm I saw you nodding, so for the audience yeah, at home, yeah. there was some yeah. there was some nodding there. Like how, how do you balance that? Like well, once you've written this other book, like how do you choose like what to do next with with your time writing for personal projects? I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm. I love having ideas. They they seem to. I'm quite blessed. They seem to come quite quickly and quite naturally. And for me, it's choosing the ones that I can actually finish. I've quite ironic. Cause I haven't finished the last book, but usually <laughs> I will. I will pick a project that seems manageable and and I, that I can finish. Uh, and whatever is is really interesting to me at the time, and I suppose more and more interesting to other people as well. I don't I don't just want to do vanity projects right. anymore. Someone's got to read it. Someone's got to read is it. it a and book if no one reads it. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, and and I I don't just produce for the sake of producing that much anymore. I, I produce because I want people to read my work and enjoy it or react to it dislike it whatever start conversations around it and 
and yeah, the the bigger and better the idea, then I suppose the more worthwhile it is to pursue. Well, that kind of brings us nicely to probably time. Wow. It always goes quickly. It really does go quickly. I, f- I feel like we've got you just before all the workshops, so we've got all the good stuff. Yeah, I think you have. You've got me between jet lag and beginning of workshops, so you've got this this nice period where I'm quite chilled yeah. over here. Yeah, this, this has been really good. So shout out to Anita. I think yeah, and Agda, Agda for bringing you over. Where we normally leave off is like, where can people find out more about you? You can find out about the table at wearethetable.com. And then I suppose to to follow some of my crazy adventures, I'm on Twitter. So it's at Rob Self Pearson. And yeah, I share as much as I possibly can on there. As long as it's not too crazy an idea, then it appears on there. How can people find you, Matt? Uh, Matt underscore Leach. Right. For circles. Matt's whole Instagram thing is just circles. So you should get a moon one happening. Ah. Ah. I, was, I was thinking of doing for the table just lots of pictures of tables yeah. on Instagram. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And I'm on Twitter and Instagram and everything at Flynn Tracy. And you can find this episode and more at AUSDesignRadio.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and SoundCloud at AUSDesignRadio. Thanks, Rob. My Thank pleasure. You, thanks, Lovely to meet. And you. Cheers, guys. Cheers.